Hi everyone, welcome back to China in the Caribbean podcast. Today I am joined by Victor Bomer Thomas, Professor Emeritus of Economics at University of London, and former director of Chatham House. He wrote what is perhaps the best book on Caribbean economic history, titled "The Economic History of the Caribbean Since the Napoleonic Wars." It is not possible to have a serious and nuanced conversation on the Caribbean's engagement with China without understanding the historical context of the Caribbean economies. So, with that in mind, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Bomer Thomas. I'm going to start our conversation with a brief quote from your book. There is a great deal of pessimism in the Caribbean today, just as there was in the 1930s, 1890s, and even earlier. The region has struggled to find the correct policy responses to globalization. is increasingly marginal to the interests of most countries. It's mostly too rich to qualify for aid flows or debt relief, and has failed to build institutions in those are required. Some of this pessimism is justified, but much of it is not. The Caribbean still has advantages that other less fortunate regions do not, and is in a position to resolve many of its own problems itself. Whether it does so depends in part on drawing the right lessons from its own historical experience. From this quote, I think it's, it should be clear that we shouldn't think of the Caribbean-China engagement as a blank slate, but you know, well contextualized in how the Caribbean would need to grow. So, to counter the pessimism that developed in the Caribbean, it seems it would have been obvious to search out new partners, and China happens to be a potential new partner the Caribbean can and should engage with. But before we kind of dive into the specific cases of Caribbean development, I want to start from a broad research question. So I am asked quite often, "What counts as the Caribbean?" But you know, sometimes I also struggle with that question too. And it always reminds me of this quip by Frank Moyapons, a famous Caribbean historian. He said that the Caribbean only exists for three people: sales managers. Politicians and academics. With that in mind, I do wonder, in your, from your perspective, what do you think counts as the Caribbean? Yes, I'll certainly、uh, try. I mean, clearly, before the Europeans arrived,、uh, there was clearly a sense of the Caribbean、uh, occupied by the Arawaks, the Caribs, the Tainos, and so on, and all trading with each other. And of course, they would have made some distinction between those islands which were dominated by the Tainos, those were dominated by the Arawaks, or what have you. But they would have thought of it as one space, all the islands of the Caribbean.、Uh, but of course, when the Europeans came, they brought their European rivalries,、uh, their different European、um, uh, imperialisms, and so. Very quickly, the Caribbean game divided up according to those European、uh, divisions themselves, and that's created、uh, a language problem. It's created、uh, political problems, 
but there's no geographical problem. I mean, it's still the Caribbean with uh, a set of islands um, which have uh, a shared history, uh, both before and after the arrival of the Europeans. And for me, the only issue is to what extent you bring in uh, some parts of the mainland uh, of Central America and South America to uh, fit a reasonable definition of the Caribbean. And that's where the disputes tend to arise. I take the view that one should add uh, the three Guyanas and Belize because they share such a common history with the islands of the Caribbean, uh, two being former British colonies, one former French, one former Dutch. Uh, but I can see the case why others want to go further and talk about a greater Caribbean that includes the Caribbean coast of Colombia, for example, or Venezuela, or the Colombian coast, of, that's the Caribbean coast of uh, Nicaragua. The problem for me with that is that you can't separate out the data for say uh, Nicaragua, uh, the Caribbean data from the rest of the country. And since I wanted this book to be very much data driven, uh, compiling a database that had never been done before, I really couldn't uh, adopt that broader definition. But I have some sympathy. I have some sympathy for those who want to do it. Uh, in, in your book, you group the Caribbean by these various constitutional arrangements. Why was that your preferred choice? Well, that that was fairly straightforward. I mean, um, I start my database uh, for population in 1810, for everything else, 1820. And at that point, uh, there was only one independent country in the Caribbean, and that was Haiti. And so Haiti is clearly in a special category. And then the others were divided up according to uh, which... Um, uh, uh, imperial power uh, claimed or was responsible for the affairs of that country. So that's why you have the so-called Spanish-speaking countries, French-speaking, Dutch-speaking, English-speaking. But the categories, uh, they change over time because obviously after 1898, oh, well, by the end of the 19th century, you have another independent country, which is uh, Santo Domingo, later the Dominican Republic, after 1898, you have a new imperial power in the form of the United States. And so you have to carve them up a little bit differently. And then we come to the period after 1960, when we have uh, so many independent countries, where I think I found the easiest way to divide it up was in terms of CARICOM, and uh, then the remaining dependencies, whether they were British, French, Dutch, or US. But sorry, just just on that, I, I did it in such a way that anyone who was just interested in, say, I don't know, the Cayman Islands could actually trace it all the way back to the beginning uh, without finding that the data had been lost in, uh, in the way I'd aggregated it. So I have another methodology question for you. So in your analysis, you divided up the Caribbean into three eras. You have the free trade era the Age of Preference era, and the Age of Globalization era. I'm curious why you decided to cut uh, Caribbean economic history in those three categories. Well, good question. Um, in a way, it's easier if I work backwards. Clearly, if we take the last 50 years or so, 
there have been global forces at work uh, which have had a huge impact in the Caribbean as they have in every other part of the world. And the purpose of those global forces has been to try and break down the preferences that previously existed. Preferences, of course, are only preferences from the point of view of uh, one country. From the point of view of others, they are restrictions. Uh, and so the point of our globalization was to try and eliminate these restrictions or preferences and to have a world in which uh, uh, there were, you eliminated those sorts of um, uh, arrangements. So going back before uh, globalization, you have this long period when the imperial powers were trying to um, restrict access to their colonies in order to give preference to themselves. And um, the most uh, aggressive were probably the French, uh, but the um, uh, Spanish uh, and later the Dutch and even the British uh, uh, and of course the United States uh, were fairly quick to follow. Uh, if we go back before this age of preferences uh, to uh, a sort of long period in the 19th century, not so much at the beginning, but more in the middle and towards the end, we find uh, here that there were much less restrictions in terms of uh, which countries uh, could sell to or whom they could buy from. And that's particularly true, obviously, of the British colonies, because after the elimination of um, tariffs in the UK economy after the 1840s, um, the idea was that uh, uh, other countries, other colonies, would, to some extent, uh, be caught up in that. They themselves did not have to follow the, exactly the same rules as happened in the UK, but it was clearly very different from what had gone before when there was only one country that you could sell to if you were a British colony, and that was the United Kingdom. Yeah. And when I think trade it discussed, at least Caribbean trade discussed outside the Caribbean, there's very little understanding that at one time that trade was very strictly regulated in the Caribbean to these particular corridors. And in some ways that persists now. Like even for example Suriname, its biggest trade partners are the US and the Netherlands. And of course, given Suriname was once a former Dutch colony, you kind of see that persistence remains. But to go to a different topic, could you walk us through how the geopolitics of the core countries, is your terminology, impacted the geopolitics in the Caribbean and therefore how the Caribbean had its specific economic arrangements? Well, the core countries are the imperial countries, and they saw themselves as in a special relationship with their colonies in the Caribbean, and they wanted to uh, maximize the advantages from that relationship. And to a large extent, they saw that by making sure that others were not in a position to compete on the same terms as they were in those colonies. So if you're thinking of Barbados, for example, uh, the idea was that uh, uh, exports from Barbados uh, would go primarily, if not exclusively, to Great Britain, and Barbados would then import manufactured goods, and in some cases agricultural goods, from Great Britain or its other colonies. 
And um, as the system uh, developed, uh, once we get into the age of preferences, then clearly the idea was that uh, uh, Barbados uh, could uh, buy, not necessarily from the UK, but ideally from other British colonies. And slowly over time, the restrictions on where it could sell to uh, were relaxed. And the other countries did exactly the same. And uh, in the case of the United States, uh, it operated uh, essentially through the tariff system. So in the case of Puerto Rico, which became a U.S. colony after 1898, there were zero tariffs uh, between the United States and Puerto Rico, whereas Puerto Rico did have tariffs on imports from all other countries. And so inevitably, you find that trade with the US, which already been quite important during the Spanish era, suddenly goes to virtually 100%. And it's simply to do with the discriminatory tariffs or the fact that you have positive tariffs in one set of countries and zero tariffs with another. And the US actually used this system with Cuba, even though Cuba wasn't technically a colony. So under the 1903 uh, trade treaty, the bilateral trade treaty between Cuba and the United States, uh, Cuba was given a tariff preference in the United States for its sugar and tobacco, and in return had to give a tariff preference to the United States on all the imports that it needed. And so, guess what? Very quickly, you find Cuba importing virtually everything from the United States and hardly anything from anywhere else. And of course, during this same period, the slavery was a, a core feature of the common Caribbean. And I know there's a lot of points of analysis on slavery and its effects, economically, I'm speaking. But what is your view on the impact of slavery on Caribbean economies and as well as the economy of the core countries? Yes, well, it, it, I mean, the first point is to, is to make it clear that... Uh, is to distinguish between the, the trade in slaves and the institution of slavery. Uh, the first country to abolish slavery, i.e. Haiti, is obviously the first to abolish the slave trade, because if you abolish slavery, there can be no slave trade. But in the case of every other country, there is a, a lag between the time in which... Uh, the slave trade is abolished and the time that the institution of slavery is abolished. So you have these two things going on side by side, as it were. So if you take, for example, the case of uh, United Kingdom, which abolishes the trade, uh, the, the, the trade in slaves in 1807, uh, 1808, it, it, it's phased in over a few months. Uh, but slavery itself isn't abolished till 1833, or some would argue 1838 at the end of the apprenticeship period. You have this long period where there is slavery, but there is no slave trade. Now that uh, in itself is very interesting because every country had these long lags because the normal situation in the Caribbean was that the birth rate of the slaves was less than the death rate. So if there's no slave trade, then the slaves will simply die out. And so the approach of the imperial countries was to permit immigration from 
other parts of the world, which was not classified as slavery, but was classified as indentured labor or something of that sort. And that incidentally is why the Chinese come to Cuba, uh, because they came as indentured labor at just after Cuba or Spain on behalf of Cuba had agreed to end uh, the slave in trade, even though they did not end slavery itself for another uh, 40 years. The impact of this uh, in the core countries uh, is very complex because um, there was a certain amount of uh, hypocrisy. Uh, there was a lot of hypocrisy. Uh, first, because of the confusion between abolishing the slave trade and abolishing slavery. And there are still people today who don't understand the difference between these two things. So those who campaigned in the UK or in France or wherever it was to end the trade in slaves were not necessarily against slavery. It's hard for people to understand that in these core countries. Uh, but that was the case. Uh, so someone like uh, uh, Wilberforce, who is famous in, in the UK for having opposed slavery, no, he opposed the trade in slaves. He didn't initially oppose slavery. They thought that if you abolish the trade, the treatment of the slaves would improve, the birth rate would therefore rise, and then it would exceed the death rate. Um, so that's the, first, that's the first impact, if you like, in terms of... Uh, the core countries. The second was that having abolished slavery and then knowing that, say, sugar was being grown by free labor, free in inverted commas, because, of course, indentured labor wasn't really very free. Uh, they were then, of course, perfectly able to import sugar from, say, Cuba or Brazil, which was still being grown by uh, uh, with the labor of slaves. And so uh, what you have is at the end of slavery in the Caribbean, uh, in the case of the UK and later France, uh, but importing of the same products using slave labor from other parts of the world. Um, and there were protests about that uh, in the core countries, but sadly not enough uh, to uh, stop it. Although there was a brief moment in the 1840s when in, uh, in the United Kingdom, a tariff was introduced to discriminate against slave-grown sugar, but it only lasted about 18 months. Hmm. Uh, further on the slavery question, one of the most famous books in the Caribbean is Eric Williams' Capitalism and Slavery. And in that book, he made the argument that it was really the falling economic returns to slavery that eventually led to the abolition of, of the slaves. That is, because the profit was no longer, you know, good, that that was the reason why the slaves were eventually freed. Of course, this is one of the core arguments in the reparations arguments in the Caribbean and in the, the, the US and so on. I don't really have much faith in those arguments, but personally, personally, but I do wonder if you have an opinion on the Williams argument. Well, I think it's a brilliant book, and I think its reputation has actually been enhanced over time. 
And the reason is that Eric Williams was doing two things. He was not just talking about the economics of slavery in the Caribbean and arguing uh, that uh, the economics had changed to the point where slavery was no longer profitable. He, he may not be right about that, but it's certainly an argument that could be made. But he was also making another point, which was uh, initially ignored or discredited, which is that slavery was absolutely crucial to the Industrial Revolution in the advanced European countries. He focused on Britain, but he could have said the same about Holland or, the, or, or, or France, uh, probably less so about Spain, but he focused on, on Britain. Now, that argument was initially treated with uh, huge scepticism, but we've now seen, as a result of uh, uh, wonderful research in the last 20 years, that actually Eric Williams was completely right and that slavery was crucial to the Industrial Revolution in the United Kingdom. And we're now getting the numbers to back that up. And so uh, leaving aside the argument of whether slavery was uh, phased out purely for economic reasons, uh, we can certainly uh, uh, recognize the remarkable achievement of Eric Williams in the second argument that he's putting in that book. Um, the question of whether um, uh, it was more profitable to operate with or without slave labor, you can still argue the case the way Eric Williams did, because the fact is that um, uh, uh, the when slavery ended in the Caribbean, in the British colonies, uh, sugar ceased to be profitable. Uh, now, that is a counter argument to what Eric Williams is saying. But of course, the reason is that the price of sugar had collapsed for reasons that had nothing to do with slavery and had much more to do with the new entrance into the, um, into the supply of sugar and the abolition of uh, tariffs by, uh, uh, in Britain. On the other hand, uh, there's no doubt that the continuation of slave-grown uh, products in some parts of the Caribbean was becoming uh, unprofitable. Um, and uh, that would then support the uh, Eric Williams's argument. Clearly, on that side of things, probably a little bit more does need to be done. Incidentally, uh, if you go back much further in time, this is nothing to do with the Caribbean, uh, but if you go to the Middle Ages in Europe, and you, when there was slavery, of course, it was white slavery, not black slavery, but the white slaves, uh, they did become uneconomic. And so the institution just gets phased out in favor of serfdom, which is a bit like indentured labor. So that example of how slavery disappears for economic reasons, that's very much supported by the, uh, the Williams thesis. I know you also study the Latin American economies. I'm curious if there's or there was much interaction between the Caribbean Latin America in the you know eighteenth nineteenth centuries because right now there is very little uh there was some, but we shouldn't exaggerate it um for example, perhaps the key links were between the so called um entrepot islands, the islands that were uh dedicated to free trade. They weren't primarily interested in producing commodities, but they were interested in uh, imports and 
re-exports. There was a lot of interaction between those islands and and the mainland of Latin America. And I'll give you an example, for example. If you take uh, what was then the Swedish colony of San Bartolomé, which is now, of course, a French island, uh, after the transfer in 1878. But in the 1820s, San Bartolomé was a major source of weapons for the revolutionaries in Venezuela who were fighting with Simón Bolívar. And if you go forward, you find that the island of St. Thomas in the Danish Virgin Islands, it's now one of the uh, U.S. Uh, Virgin Islands, the Danish uh, island of St. Thomas was absolutely crucial in uh, providing uh, 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 re-exports for different parts of uh, Latin America because they could provide those goods more cheaply than if they bought them uh, from, uh, from other sources. And similarly, in the case of Belize, and in uh, much of the 19th century, there was a massive uh, entrepot trade between Belize and Central America, so that goods from the UK to Central America were shipped first to Belize and then re-exported from there. Ah, yeah, that's pretty interesting. And another quirk of Caribbean economic history is the demise of Haiti. Haiti was once a crown in the crown jewel in the French Empire. And at one point, it was, you know, by far the most important Caribbean economy. But then in the 20th century, 19th century, Haiti just went complete downfall, the decline and fall all the way down. Why do you think Haiti had such a terrible economic um, development? Well, I'm glad you asked me that because uh, I did a huge amount of work on Haiti and I devote a special chapter to it in in the book to which you refer. Um, And I don't accept that Haiti declined rapidly, not at all. I think um, the first point is that its prosperity, of course, prosperity was just for a handful of of the uh, French settlers, but the prosperity under the French Empire, was based on sugar. And sugar could not continue after independence, not so much because the former slaves refused to work on the estates. It wasn't that. It was that Haiti very quickly moved to a system of small landholding. The big estates got broken up and they were redistributed to uh, uh, the small, a small peasantry. And you can't produce sugar under those circumstances, but you can produce other crops. And the most obvious one is coffee. And so Haiti became a major exporter of coffee, which made perfect sense in terms of its uh, structure of land holdings, in terms of its uh, small scale peasantry, in terms of its uh, geography, topology and all the rest of it. Uh, with the mountains providing shade for the coffee trees and so on. And Haiti's um, exports of coffee uh, made it, uh, for a long period, the fourth largest exporter of coffee in the world. So that's not disappearing off a cliff. The trouble is that Haiti became so specialised in coffee that it was vulnerable because the coffee uh, was subject to an export tax the exports of coffee then paid for imports, 
the imports were subject to import tariffs, and the taxes on exports and imports provided 99% of Haiti's uh, government revenue. And since the coffee was about 70% of Haiti's exports, you can see that if anything happened to these coffee exports, then Haitian public revenue would collapse and its ability to function as a state would be uh, severely challenged. And nothing to do with Haiti, but after the collapse of the empire in Brazil and the creation of a republic, uh, something happened in Brazil that led to a massive overproduction of coffee and a collapse in world prices. And so Haiti suddenly found itself getting a fraction of the revenue that it had previously uh, enjoyed from its coffee boom. And then it was forced to uh, secure, to, to obtain short-term loans, both externally and internally, at ridiculous rates of interest. I mean, at the worst, it was paying 50% per year for the money that it was borrowing from the, the local merchants. That is unsustainable. And of course, uh, uh, with the um, uh, uh, start of the First World War, uh, the United States became very concerned about German activity in the Caribbean and the possibility that Germany might try and uh, seize Haiti and create a naval base. And so the United States intervened first, what you might call a preemptive strike, in 1915, even before the U.S. had um, entered the war. And uh, some, sometimes foreign interventions can succeed, but normally they fail. And the U.S. intervention in Haiti in 1915 was an absolute disaster, and it continued for 20 years, uh, but indirectly it continued for much longer than that. And really, that's if you're looking for the reason why things went wrong in Haiti, you have to start with the collapse of coffee prices in the 1890s. And that leads you then on to the U.S. intervention in 1915. Ah. So, again, in, in your book, you paid a very significant amount of attention on Belize. And I was very surprised by that. So I'm curious, why Belize? Well... It's a country I know extremely well. Uh, my wife is from there, and uh, I taught there at a secondary school. Um, and, um, and so I've studied it uh, in great depth. Uh, with my wife, we've written an economic history of Belize. And so it just seemed a, a very natural uh, thing to do, plus the fact that Belize doesn't normally get the attention it deserves in these kinds of books on the Caribbean as a whole. And I wanted to try and um, uh, sort of correct that uh, imbalance, if you like. Um, in addition, it's an unusual country because uh, its origins and its original prosperity had nothing to do with sugar and everything to do with two things, forestry products on the one hand, such as mahogany and logwood, and secondly, this trade with Central America, the entrepot trade that we were talking about earlier on. So I thought it would be interesting to to pick as a, as a country to show you something slightly different. Okay, and let's dive into that a bit more. 
what what's so unique about Belize, and then how did that impact the wider economic history of the Caribbean? I mean, you have to you have to go back to the very beginning because if you think of every other island in the Caribbean, you know not just the year, but in many cases the day on which they were first uh, settled by Europeans and became European colonies. You have these royal charters in the case of countries like Barbados. Uh, you have the date of arrival of Columbus, if we're talking about uh, the Dominican Republic or Cuba or whatever it is. We know exactly when the first French uh, uh, colonialists arrived. In the case of Belize, we don't know any of that. We don't know when the first settlers uh, came. And what is more, uh, what we do know is that whenever they arrived, they were not only illegal under Spanish law, they were illegal under British law. <laughs> so for the first century, uh, the settlers there had to deal not only with a hostile Spain, but they had to deal with a hostile Britain as well. And they only got the most minimal recognition from both the Spanish and the British governments in 1763, after they'd probably been there for around 100 years. As I say, we can't be certain. Uh, it then has a very uh, precarious existence, not as a colony, but as a settlement. <clears throat> and the difference is that as a settlement, you are effectively like a leaseholder rather than a freeholder. You, you have certain rights uh, which Spain had granted uh, to the settlers in Belize, um, and that restricted what they could do. So they couldn't just do anything they wanted. They couldn't, for example, have, have grown sugar. Uh, they were allowed only to chop and export logwood and later on uh, mahogany. And that was the treaties signed between Britain and, and Spain restricted the settlers and their slaves in Belize to do only those two things. So you have in its origins a, a, a country which is producing uh, as its main export something which in the other parts of the Caribbean is actually relatively marginal. Uh, and that, again, makes it very different. It's not the only country, of course, where logwood was important. I mean, Haiti was a major exporter of logwood too as was uh, Jamaica, but they had other products which uh, were more important. In Belize, logwood for a long time was the most important one. So let's jump a bit forward to the 20th century and discuss Puerto Rico and industrialization. So Sir Arthur Lewis, who is a key figure in this time period, a Nobel laureate economist from St. Lucia, has some really great economics work. And it seems like his work is not that much read anymore these days. But in any case, he had a very big theory and proposal on industrialization, and he looked at the operation of bootstrap in Puerto Rico as a good guidepost. Um, he was ridiculed somewhat in the Caribbean for this idea, actually, and it never got off the ground. So I wonder, what was your view on Sir Arthur Lewis's industrialization plan and why the Caribbean hasn't been able to even catch up with Puerto Rico? Well, Arthur Lewis was a very brilliant man, and I'm sorry if you think uh, he's no longer being studied or 
read in the same way as he was before, because he certainly deserves to. But on the question of Puerto Rico, I think he was wrong, because he thought that Puerto Rico could be a model for the rest of the Caribbean, and it couldn't be. And the reason it couldn't be is of the special relationship that existed between Puerto Rico and the United States. The industrialization in Puerto Rico was extremely fragile, as we later discovered, because it depended entirely on fiscal privileges provided by the US government and later on by the Puerto Rico government. And they could not be replicated in the rest of the Caribbean. So essentially, the United States was, cre was enlarging its economic space to include Puerto Rico and providing uh, fiscal incentives for US firms to move there and to assemble and export products to the United States. Uh, but the fiscal privileges turned out to be so generous uh, uh, and the lost revenue for the federal government in the US so large that of course, eventually the privileges were withdrawn and industrialization has effectively collapsed in Puerto Rico. And the only manufacturing firms that still find it profitable to, to go there are pharmaceutical firms because they can use uh, Puerto Rico as a place to park their research and development costs in, um, in pharmaceutical uh, 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 products. Uh, and, and that way they can uh, uh, still make uh, substantial profits. But the other types of manufacturing uh, have basically left Puerto Rico. And so uh, this was the problem when Arthur Lewis thought that other countries could do the same thing. Um, I suppose theoretically they could, but they were not in a position uh, to force um, the imperial countries in Europe to follow suit. They wouldn't have done it anyway. And once they became independent, they didn't have the uh, fiscal means to uh, replicate what the US federal government has done. So that opportunity for uh, industrialization, I don't think was ever there. There were other opportunities, but replicating the Puerto Rican model, I don't think that was ever a realistic option. Now in the 60s and 70s in the Caribbean, this was, I guess, a period of economic experimentation. You had, obviously, Cuba is there. You have Jamaica that move a bit more towards socialist policies. You have Guyana with a very authoritarian leader, uh, Forbes Burnham, who was a very big um, admirer of Kim Il-sung in North Korea, or even Nkrumah. You have also Grenada, they had a revolution that ended in the deaths and execution of political figures. The America had to invade to restore order. But this, this all happened around the same time. What do you think accounted for this really aggressive period of experimentation in the Caribbean in terms of economic arrangements? Well, I think it's a very common problem with uh, nationalist movements all over the world that the struggle to become independent and to remove the political dependence on the former imperial power uh, becomes so overwhelming that there isn't sufficient attention to how the economic model might change. 
And so when the countries that you've mentioned uh, do become independent, um, there is really uh, no um, dynamic <coughs> to push the economic model in a different direction. So the economy carries on <coughs> in very much the way that it had been, but this time with even fewer advantages than it had before, because there is going to be less assistance from the metropolitan powers, and there are going to be less um, guaranteed markets in the metropolitan powers, because these countries are now independent. Uh, so it's perfectly natural, and I am totally understand why uh, Jamaica under Manley or Guyana under Burnham, uh, or the same thing in, in Suriname, why they would want to, uh, or in Grenada, why they would want to experiment with uh, uh, different approaches to uh, the economic model. Um, and some good things were done, uh, but unfortunately, a lot of mistakes were, were made as well. In the case of Jamaica, though, it's worth remembering that probably the main reason for the economic uh, disasters in the uh, uh, in the seventies was due to external hostility by the international financial institutions and the U.S. government, rather than the mistakes of Manley himself. He made plenty of mistakes. I'm not I'm not denying that, but he was not cut any slack, and uh, that's why the situation became so. Uh, extremely difficult. So as I mentioned earlier about the American invasion in Grenada, this in this time period in the Caribbean, the Empire of America seems to be very active. And it's a good time to mention you have another book, a more recent book, about the American Empire, where you specifically target the term empire and use it as a, a tool. So in the Caribbean, this seems quite obvious, but Outside the Caribbean, there seems to be some pushback on that terminology. So I wonder, what, what justifies calling America an, em an empire? Well, that's a very interesting question, because uh, the reaction to that, the title of that book, which is uh, Empire in Retreat, the Past, Present and Future of the United States, the word empire doesn't actually cause that many problems in the United States itself. So if you take the reviews of the book, some good, some not so good, as is always the case, none of them actually criticize the use of the word empire to describe the United States. <laughs> but you're quite right. In other parts of the world, for example, I've given talks in South America about uh, this sense of an empire and retreat. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea of describing the United States as an empire. In the United Kingdom, where I live, people are very uncomfortable with the idea of the US as an empire, uh, which I find um, very strange, but that's the reality. Uh, but they're not embarrassed about it in the United States, and that's true whether they are for it or against it. They can see why you might refer to the United States uh, in those terms. Now, when it comes to the Caribbean, in a way it's much easier because uh, the United States became a colonial power after 1898 in exactly the way that uh, Spain had been or Britain, France and Holland uh, were. 
It had colonies, and indeed it still has colonies. It still has Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands, and you can call them what you like, but they are US dependencies. Effectively, they are colonies. So after 1898, uh, it's perfectly legitimate to refer to the United States as an empire. And indeed, for a long time, the United States government also referred to itself as an empire uh, when dealing with uh, 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 its, its, its dependencies uh, in the Caribbean. It even changed the name of Puerto Rico to Puerto Rico to make it easy for U.S. officials to pronounce. Now, if that's not the act of an empire, I don't know what is. <laughs> so the question then is not so much, well, why would you refer to the United States as an empire in the Caribbean after 1898? That's self-explanatory because it has colonies, right? The question is why you might refer to it in those terms before 1898. But the answer is that anyone who knows the history of U.S. relations with uh, Cuba, Haiti and the Dominican Republic in the 19th century would, I think, in all fairness, have to accept that that is a fair description. Take the case of the Dominican Republic, which used to be called Santo Domingo. Um, As early as 1869, they asked to become a territory of the United States. This is in 1869. And the US president was very much in favor of that. Becoming a territory means effectively becoming a colony. What happens after that depends on all sorts of things. But when you become a territory, you become a colony of the United States. And the only reason that it didn't become a colony is because when it came to a vote in the United States Senate, it was one vote short of the two-thirds majority that was needed uh, to bring it about. So if it wasn't for the vote of, uh, you know, just one person, uh, the Dominican Republic would have become a colony of the United States at that time. And who knows, it might still be. I, I don't know if you've thought about this question, but on this topic of counterfactual colonies, so Canada in the 1800s, late 1800s, wanted to acquire Jamaica from the UK uh, as its own colony. So it'd be Jamaica would be, instead of a colony of the UK administration, it'd be a colony of Canada, which is still at the time a UK colony. But now, if that were the case, that means Jamaica, under its counterfactual, would be a province of Canada in the Caribbean. So I wonder, what do you think the Caribbean economic system would look like now if Jamaica was a province of Canada? Well, <laughs> that's an interesting thought, isn't it? I mean, a very difficult counterfactual, and I'd have to probably think about it a bit more. But um, what is certainly true, of course, is that um, after the uh, Royal Commission reported in 1897, the British Royal Commission reported about the terrible uh, situation of the sugar industry, as a result of the absence of preferences, what we were talking about earlier on, very soon after that, Canada became the first part of the British Empire to introduce imperial preferences. And these were obviously extended to the British islands in the Caribbean, which meant that they now had a new market for their sugar in Canada, which didn't exist before. And suddenly, you start to see a huge increase in trade between Canada and islands like Jamaica. Um, but if even if that had happened, that uh, uh, Jamaica had become a colony of Canada rather than the United Kingdom, 
I'm not sure that uh, it would have made a huge difference to the subsequent story, but I'd have to think that through more carefully because you've really you've really thrown me there with that question. <laughs> so as we move more towards the present, you can see now the Caribbean has had a very rough time when it comes to getting a proper footing in economic growth. The early empire interaction that didn't work. The experimentation period, the communism versus non-communism, that didn't work. The industrialization period never took off. There seems to be a intellectual vacuum in the Caribbean across board where no one really has an agreement. When I say no one, I guess mostly political class, agreement on what to do about growth. And 2008 happened. It was like a very symbolic uh, fissure in terms of how to think about capitalist growth in the Caribbean. So we have a, a crossroads, as it, as it were. The entire arc of economic history in the Caribbean comes to this point where there still isn't a understanding of how to progress these economies. So what do you think about it? How should the Caribbean think about growth given its very unique historical disadvantage? Well, I think the Caribbean has done some things well and some things wrong. So the recognition that the future for exports lay more in services than in manufacturing was probably correct. And the decision to move towards some form of regional integration through CARICOM was also correct. The trouble is that in neither of those things did they go far enough. So let's take the shift to services. Unfortunately, far too many countries identify services just with tourism. And I think that was a big mistake because services consist of many, many different kinds of exports of which tourism is only one. And there are countries which are dependent on exports of services, but they don't, they're not dependent on tourism. And I think the Caribbean had an opportunity to diversify its exports of services early on and failed to take it. And these services could have been transport services, medical, educational, musical, cultural, what have you, but they didn't do it. And now they've got to find a way of doing it because the future of tourism, particularly after COVID, is a little uncertain. And even if it hadn't been for COVID, I think they would have had to move in a slightly different direction when it came to services anyway. And the second is the question of integration. I think regional integration was a very good idea. The trouble is that it was far too uh, narrow in scope. And the countries that did form CARICOM focused far too much on what's called deepening integration and not enough on widening it. The fact is that if you leave aside Haiti, which only joined CARICOM relatively late on, the populations of the countries that make up CARICOM is absolutely tiny. It amounts to one large city in uh, Asia or Africa or Latin America. 
not even a very large city, just a, a, a sort of minor large city, you see what I mean? And that's just not big enough to create the, the, the economies of scale that you need to get uh, in, in order to get the benefits from regional integration. So an effort should have been made much earlier on to build links with the, uh, the larger parts of the Caribbean, not just with the Dominican Republic, as has started to happen, but also with Cuba, with Puerto Rico, and with the small French and Dutch islands, because although they are small, they're very rich, and this is a potentially uh, very rewarding market. So um, those two tasks are still open. The door hasn't closed. I mean, that, that is a task that could still be carried out. And I noticed that the Caribbean Development Bank in Barbados, where you are, now has a new uh, uh, president uh, who will start soon. And perhaps this will be an opportunity for the Caribbean Development Bank to help push uh, regional integration into more of an emphasis on widening and less of an emphasis on deepening. Yeah, integration. Are you optimistic about the prospects of integration? So, of course, I'm asking this in the context of the failed British West Indies Federation of 58 to 62. That was pretty deep. It was not very wide, but it was quite deep. So again, in, in, that, in that context, are you optimistic about the regionalism of these insular countries? Well, I think you've got to distinguish between the economics and the politics of uh, integration. I mean, the British West Indies Federation was a political project of the British government uh, designed to help it with the process of decolonization. It didn't really have the interests of the Caribbean countries uh, as a priority, not at all. It was about the interests of the, of the British state. Uh, so it's not surprising that uh, it failed. But uh, the, the, economics of, the economics aspects of, say, CARICOM uh, can be quite easily separated from the politics. Um, you can have very successful integration schemes in which the member states have quite a different uh, political view of one another. Uh, and that's true, obviously, of the European Union. Uh, but in a way, funnily enough, it's true of the United States because the 50 states uh, are a political uh, federation, but they're also an economic, uh, uh, an economically integrated system, and they have very different uh, political views, depending on which state you're talking about. So um, I don't see why uh, Caribbean integration can't advance uh, just because there are political differences or different ideologies or approaches uh, among the member states. Um, it only becomes a problem when you try and uh, go too far with deepening. And this has been the problem in the European Union. It's when the member states have tried to integrate their economies down to a very deep level that you've started to get roadblocks in the integration process. And I think that's been the problem in the Caribbean, this focus on a single market with a single currency and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't the right moment for that. And I think much more focus should have been on broadening to create new opportunities in these new markets of countries right close by on the doorstep. 
So given the tour we just had of Caribbean economic history, you have a very unique vantage point of thinking about China and the Caribbean engagement. So how do you see that playing out in the Caribbean? And how should the Caribbean think about um, doing more engagement economically with China? Well, it's fascinating. And uh, of course, uh, the Caribbean is quite right to try and take advantage of it, because if you look at uh, uh, the history, the economic history of the Caribbean, uh, if you are a region that is dependent on external trade and on finding new markets and new opportunities for your exports and goods and services, it's perfectly logical to look at which are the rising economies in the world, those with the fastest growing imports and creating the greatest opportunities for the Caribbean. And China obviously fits that bill. Uh, Just as over 100 years ago, it was the United States that fitted that role and made it imperative that Caribbean countries, as far as they could, should shift exports away from relatively slow-growing markets in Europe towards this fast-growing market in the United States. Uh, they were unable to do so very easily because of the restrictions on their trade that we talked about earlier on. But with China, these restrictions don't exist. It's uh, entirely possible for a Caribbean country to start importing less from country X and importing Y from China or exporting less to country X and exporting more to China. That is a matter that can be resolved between those countries. What's lacking, of course, is um, a sort of coordinated approach to this uh, on the part of the Caribbean to avoid the risk that China ends up playing off one Caribbean country against another. It's not a stated policy of of China to do it, but it is inevitable when you are dealing with such a large country and you're dealing with such very powerful uh, business groups in China, the temptation uh, to play one off against the other is going to be very strong. And it's it's that, I think, that uh, probably needs uh, more attention in the Caribbean than uh, hitherto it has received. But in general, I think the uh, closer ties between uh, China and the Caribbean are very much to be welcomed. Yeah, I also share those same sentiments. So is there anything you want to close on? Any last thoughts? Well, I think what you're doing is uh, is just a great idea because uh, to raise awareness of China and to see it as an opportunity rather than a threat, uh, to see it in its proper historical context, I think all of that is absolutely uh, essential. And... Um, it doesn't mean that uh, it's not a zero sum game. It does, you know, China's increasing ties with the Caribbean doesn't mean that somehow some other country is going to get squeezed out. No, there's room for 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 everyone to benefit in in, in this situation, uh, and China looks as if it will remain uh, not just a a very large uh, world economy but very soon the world's largest economy. I mean, it's already the world's largest exporter and will very soon be the world's largest importer. And if you are a region like the Caribbean, which is dependent on foreign trade, you have to take advantage of that. 
Absolutely, you have to. And the more you can draw attention to that among people in the Caribbean and elsewhere, the better. Can liberate the people over hills and valleys too. Don't let them fool you. Don't believe for a minute that they are with you. To free the people over hills and valleys too. Don't let them fool you. Don't believe for a minute they don't like you. Why try to make? Happy, really, I don't know. If it was up to them, my friend, we would never see the sun or the snow. Through that mystical communication within, we keep on coming together. I love to see brothers and sisters looking out for one another. That's the way it should be, not contrary. Stop tearing down each other. Rasta free the people Over hills and valleys too Don't let them fool you Don't believe one minute That they are with you Shall free the people